Hi listeners, today's episode is all about humbling yourself and understanding that you really don't know who you are. Well, interestingly enough, when I spoke about these brain circuits that we share with other mammals, for play and for loving and seeking, we also have a brain circuit for panic and grief. Why do we have that? Because life brings loss. And so grief is essential for life, because grief is coming to terms with the fact that something is gone, it's not going to come back. You know, so um, when a child experiences grief, and, and you know, I said that the, the, the need of the child is to be able to experience all the emotions, they need to be able to experience the grief as well. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether from adult eyes we see that loss as major or minor, it's a question of how is the child experiencing it. And for a small child, even what looks like small losses can be very painful. Mm-hmm. Well, then we don't make the child wrong for it. We don't say, get over it. There's nothing wrong. Think of all the other children who are suffering, all that kind of relativistic uh, shaming stuff. We say, oh, it really hurts, doesn't it? You really wish grandpa would, would be here with you. You really wish mom and dad weren't leaving each other. It hurts. In other words, you just validate their emotions. By doing so, you help them accept the loss and you help them move through and you help them learn that they can endure difficult emotions without having to become falling to pieces. So we have a circuitry for grief in our brain, for grief in our brains. It needs to be allowed to do its work. I find that a lot of us today are reflecting on that inner child, right? Like that language is again, more widespread today or is growing the idea of like, oh, we have this inner child who has this wound or this trauma what what do you find is the difference between analyzing and overanalyzing or thinking and overthinking these experiences? And how would you define the difference? Because I, I, and I'm being very honest and vulnerable because it's the only way to have this conversation really, like I often think about events in my life that happened that would be considered generally as either difficult experiences or as traumatic, right? they could be seen as either or. There are some of them that I've worked through myself or with, with people that I trust or with guides and, and, and obviously through my monk life, there were things that I looked at and worked on. There are certain things that I don't feel a need, like I don't feel a desire to dive into. The question I'm asking is, should I dive into them? Or is that considered overanalyzing and overthinking? And I ask that for everyone else who's listening to this going, gosh, if I thought about everything that happened to me, I could be there for a while. Uh, yeah, wh- what's your take on that? Well, first of all, in my world, there's no shoulds, okay? There's no? There are no shoulds. There's no shoulds, yeah. So um, I would never say to anybody, you should, you know, because um, that itself is intrusive. So the question is whether it's helpful or not to delve into the past depends on what's happening with that individual. And if... Some of the effects, effects of trauma, as we said earlier, is that the, the wounds of the past keep showing up in the present. So from my point of view, it's not so much about delving into the past and dwelling on the past, but on dealing with how the past is showing up in the present. What a psychologist friend of mine, Peter Levine, calls the tyranny of the past, where the past dominates my present reactions. It doesn't matter how many times I go back and think about my childhood story. That's not going to help me. What I have to deal with is 
what's happening in me right now at this very second, which is a shadow of the past. So thinking about it is not going to be of much help. Um, what's going to help is to deal with the emotions that are arising now as a result of what happened and how those emotions affect my life in the present moment. So it's not about the past, it's about the present. Yeah, so it's, it's really about the choices we have now. Exactly, what's available yeah. to us now. Yeah, what's available to us now, because I feel like we didn't have a choice in the past because we were either too young or exactly. too incapable of, of making a choice. Exactly. But the choices that happen right now are, can, can transform everything. It, it is possible. Some people do make themselves into victims. They kind of identify with the victim role. All this stuff happened to me, and therefore I cannot do such and such, or I'm keep, or I'm hurt, and I'll never get over it. It's possible to identify with the victim role. It's even possible to identify with the survivor role. I'm a survivor. Well, no, that's not who you are. You survive, but who you are is much greater than that particular experience, and who you are is also much always much greater than than your suffering. You know, yeah. and so. It is possible for some people to identify with the suffering and the past to such a degree that they stop moving forward. Yes. I think you've just raised a really important component of all of this. On a deeper level is that what we identify with, right? Even earlier you were talking about people who would be raised in this hypothetical village we were talking about, but even through research, they won't identify with the values of a capitalist society. Yeah. Identification, you just said people could identify as a victim, they could identify as a survivor. What is a healthy identification? There isn't, there isn't one. Right. Because I, if you look at, again, the meaning of words, and I just find words fascinating. Same, yeah, I, yeah absolutely. I, identification comes from a Latin word, uh, idem, which means the same, and facera to make. As soon as I make myself the same as something, like if I identify with my role as a doctor, I immediately limit myself. If you identify with your experience as a monk, and I don't mean not to learn from it or to grow from it, but if I identify with it, that's what I am. You've now narrowed yourself. So there's no healthy identification. If I identify myself with a state or a nation I could be loyal to that state or nation. I could love that state or nation or any group. But if you identify with it, such as you, you have no independent existence, you've limited yourself already. Mm -hmm. So when you say, is there a healthy identification? Not really. Is it, isn't the challenge though that we're, I think all of us are pursuing some sort of identification. Like that seems to be a massive human need. Like I support this football club or I'm a fan of this band or I'm a member of the this car club or I go to this shopping grocery store. Or, like, I feel like we're all wanting to be members. Like that seems to be like a human need of wanting to be a member of a community, wanting to identify with something. It is a human need to belong, and, uh, but, but can we belong without identifying to the point that we have no independent perspective? You know, in other words, can we be authentic? And, and, and I talk a lot about this tension between authenticity, being ourselves, and attachment, which is belonging. Ideally, we can both be authentic and belong. Yeah, I like but, that. But that kind of identification often leads to suffering. I mean, it's what the Buddhists call attachment, isn't it? And let me give you an example. So you mentioned the sports team. So in, in the, you wouldn't know this, but in the 1950s, the Hungarian soccer team was the best in the world. 
We never lost. <laughs> That's I did not. I love soccer, and I did oh, not. Know. Oh no, no. We went to Britain, and we beat Britain six to three in Wembley Stadium. The wow. first The first time that it was a sorry Brit fans. Yeah, sorry about yeah. you know. Um, and it was a huge national holiday in Hungary, and small country goes to mighty Britain and beats them at their own game, you know. And the next year, and every, the whole country was joyful, and it was still one of the great memories of my childhood. The next year, we're in the World Championships, and we're the heavy favorites because we haven't lost for years. And we meet the Germans in the final, and we lose three to two. Yeah. National tragedy. Uh, I'm telling you, it still hurts. You know, it's just a football game yeah. played on the pitch by 22 guys uh, in 1954. So what, you know, but when you, when there's this over identification, yeah, then that itself brings suffering. Now, you know, yes, you can support your team. In Vancouver, British Columbia, where I live, it's a very peaceful place, but the Vancouver Canucks, which is the local hockey team, made it to the Stanley Cup finals and they lost. There were riots in the streets. Why? Because people had over identified. You can enjoy the team and be a, a sports fan, but the identification that your joy or satisfaction depends on whether your team loses or wins. Well, why? It doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I love that answer for many reasons because I've had to go through the grief of letting go of past selves, adopting new selves, and then having to realize that none of those were me as my identification. So as you rightly said, when I took off the garbs of a monk, when I took off my robes, it was really tough because there was a part of my identity, especially at a young age, that was attached even to the outer covering. And I had to realize that I had to extract the inner beliefs and leave the outer covering behind and the outer name and the, what that meant. And even in my career today, like I've, I've had to let go. And, and even now I don't even know how to identify in one sense, whenever I'm sure you, I'm sure you feel this to some degree in your work as well. It's like, whenever they say like, Oh, when you're on TV and they want to put like your, your title and they'll be like, Jay, what's your title? I'm like, yeah. I, I, I'm more defined by my purpose than my profession. Like, you know, what I, what I do for people and the service I want to offer in the world yeah. is far more important to me than author or, podcaster or former monk or like those things don't really define me well i get that totally i i um, yeah what i'm thinking about is you're telling me when you left those monk's robes we talked about the crab didn't we with the hard shell to grow you have to let go of the shell at some point so each of those moldings represent the point of growth but at the time it's difficult so when i left family practice to go and work with a highly addicted population in vancouver and it was a loss of identity for a while. I was a bit disoriented for a few days because all these people, these families that had relied on me to be the kind of the linchpin of their linchpin of their health, and all these people that had come to me and trust me, and um, who's that, who I would see in the office, and all of a sudden, I left that. Now who am I all of a sudden? So I totally understand that. Now the reality is that I'm so grateful that I did. But then I got to experience in the next realm of work helped to further define my purpose in life and taught me so much about myself and human beings. And But at the time, it was difficult. Letting go of that identification was difficult. And there was really that sense of, well, if I'm not that, then what am I? This is what happens when we identify with roles. Yeah, if anyone's listening and wants to have a go at figuring out what your subconscious answer is, 
ask one of your friends, ask them and then get them to ask you, who are you? Yeah. And, and your answer to that question, 99% of the time when you ask someone, who are you? They'll say, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant, I'm a, I'm a Brit, I'm an American. I'm, you know, always the answer is on such a material level. Well, as one spiritual teacher said, I think, unless I'm making this up, but I think he said, <laughs> they said it, that the problem is not not knowing who you are. The problem is thinking that you know who you are. Yeah. 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 It's incredible, isn't it? That the things that are true safety feel unsafe to the mind. Yeah. And I'm intrigued by that because you've studied the mind, you've studied addiction, you've studied healing, you've studied trauma. Why is it that we seek certainty and stability when you earlier also said that the only time we experience growth is the opposite, when we're vulnerable? Why is it that we're so addicted to things staying the same or things not changing? Like that seems to be a core human addiction. Well, a therapist once said to me that it has to do with the nature of the mind that you're referring to. Um, a therapist once said to me, that if your parents didn't know how to hold you, you develop the mind you hold yourself with. So you find safety in this mind that you created. And so the human mind, the ordinary egoic human mind, is basically a defensive structure. It's, in significant ways, it's a response to pain. That's not all it is, but in significant ways, it's a response to pain. It's afraid of pain, and it's designed to keep you from experiencing pain. So it's worried, and it's anxious, and it's defensive. So when it comes to change and vulnerability, the mind wants to defend against it. And so it's, it, it comes out of fear, which comes out of childhood experience where the pain that you had wasn't held. And therefore you develop these mind structures to keep you from experiencing it. And I mean, one of them clearly is addiction. And, you know, Keith Richards, the world's most famous former heroin addict, the Rolling Stone guitarist, said about addiction, for example, his heroin use, that the contortions you go through just not to be yourself for a few hours. Now, why would somebody not want to be themselves? Because it hurts so much at some point to be yourself. And then a mind comes in and tries to protect you from that pain of being yourself with its ideas and its beliefs and its certainties and its endless desires and it's uh, artificial needs, and it's afraid to let go. Because if I let go, I'll be a helpless child again. So the mind largely is a defensive structure, and then often will react that way.